Hospitals in Focus from the Federation of American Hospitals. Here's your host, Chip Kahn. To state the obvious, it isn't 2020 anymore, and we know a lot more today about COVID-19. Hospitals learned how to treat the novel disease with incredible speed and unprecedented cooperation across health systems. We are in a transitional phase with the pandemic at this point. New variants appear to be on the horizon and will likely continue to come, but the general public in at least the Western context has moved on. Despite the public's attitude about the pandemic, hospitals and frontline caregivers still face the new normal of COVID-19. Joining me today are two experts who we have been fortunate to have on Hospitals in Focus previously. Martin McKee is a professor of European Public Health at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine and soon to be president of the British Medical Association. He plays a key role in public health across the UK and Europe. We heard from him in the midst of the pandemic about the conditions overseas. Thanks so much for joining us today, Martin. Morning. Our other guest is Mike Cuff, Executive Vice President and Chief Clinical Officer for HCA Healthcare. When we heard from Mike a few years ago, he was in charge of physician services, and we talked about the HCA Healthcare Graduate Medical Education Program. Today, Mike is the medical director for the entire system. Really appreciate you being with us today, Mike. Pleasure to be with you again, Chip. Thank you. So appreciate both of you joining us today. I'm bringing you together today to discuss three areas, where we are with the pandemic, what we've learned, and where public policy ought to be on this pandemic. Uh, to get started from the perspective of the U.S. and the U.K., respectively, what is the current status of COVID? How are we doing today in managing treatment and prevention of the pandemic? And what are the immediate prospects of its challenge? Mike, why don't you begin and then Martin chime in? You know, from a hospital perspective, we're pretty well off right now. We've recently come off all-time lows. And while we see some of the encounters, given the utility of home testing and the absence of testing in some populations, it's a little harder to predict what the actual community burden is. Nonetheless, the, the clinical intensity, that is intensive care units, ventilator use, mortality, is all lower. And in fact, the Omicron experience was less than half the clinical intensity of our Delta experience. And so we're clearly improving. I, I would say that this is becoming more an endemic flu-like illness less fatal disease in the United States for sure, with our increasing immunity, our therapeutics, but it's not behind us. I'll just close by saying it's not behind us because shortages persist in nursing and certain members of our clinical staff due to burnout, macroeconomic workforce issues, shifts to contract nursing. And um, now we see inflation and labor intensity in, a, in an industry that can't easily pass on cost increases to payers or consumers. There's also supply chain issues. Those are not behind us. They continue to shift, but um, I would say that the worst is behind us, but we're not out of the woods. The situation is very similar across much of Europe in many ways. 
First of all, we have much less information about what's going on because of the reduction in testing. So in a number of countries, we had very high volumes of testing that allowed us to track the pandemic in real time. In addition, we had high levels of sequencing so we could identify the emergence of new variants. Now, that has been scaled down dramatically, reflecting, I think, a political view that we want to put the pandemic behind us. Unfortunately, the virus isn't entirely agreeing. And I think there is a degree of concern that we will have new variants emerging. We already see that with BA4 and BA5, for example, in South Africa. We're seeing them taking off and we have an expectation that as with BA1 and BA2, they will get to us eventually. I think maybe the difference is that in many European health systems, in UK in particular, because we have much less capacity than you have in the United States in general, uh, we have a very large backlog of treatment, particularly treatment of people who were not referred on time for cancer, for example, people with chronic conditions that have deteriorated. And that is putting a lot of pressure on our health systems, as well as the continuing COVID-related problems. Now, there's a lot of discussion about people being in hospital with COVID or for COVID. But the reality of it is that if you've got a severe condition and then you have COVID on top of it, then that increases the problems. So we've got the backlog and the challenge of clearing the queue. We're also still struggling with relatively high levels of staff illness with COVID. And uh, there's a, a tension in, you know, some employers, not in the health sector, fortunately, are actually arguing that their staff should come to work with COVID. Of course, we're saying that's a really bad idea, but we definitely don't want it in the health system. But you can lose a critical individual, uh, an anesthesiologist or a surgeon or a, a specialist nurse, and then the, the whole team is essentially out because you don't have that uh, scope to substitute. We also have a problem with burnout. We have had a lot of burnout during the pandemic and a lot of people have left the workforce, particularly a problem in the care sector. There, people can get jobs elsewhere, so they're going into the retail sector. Particular problem in the United Kingdom because we have very severe staff shortages across the board because of the catastrophic decision to leave the European Union. So that's having problems in that people who might work in the care sector and, and who therefore provide the care that allows patients to be discharged from hospital, so there's a knock-on effect, they are finding jobs in retail or hospitality or where, uh, elsewhere. We're also seeing that hospitals are finding difficulty in working at the same capacity because of the need to increase infection control, have greater spacing, have clean and dirty areas and so on, which is reducing what is often already relatively limited capacity compared to what you have in the United States. Gosh, let's take a little bit deeper dive, I think, with both of you. Maybe start with Mike, because you have laid out the side effects of it. Do you see these as continuing to affect healthcare for a while? Uh, and then let me add to that, uh, another question, which is long COVID. So even if we are normalizing the treatment of COVID itself, what factor for the healthcare system, which you've described a lot of side effects that could continue into the future, uh, will long COVID necessarily play in this? And then, uh, and then Martin, if you could take that too. Chip, this is a this is a in interesting space. I think it is as difficult to predict the the cross of the in emergence of uh, new variants against the continued likely periodic surges that any type of uh, coronavirus like this 
may exhibit against some of these macroeconomic forces. We have the pent-up demand, as Professor McKee mentioned, but not nearly as much as the UK backlog. And in the face of the inflationary pressures in this country, that's complicated. So I do think that long COVID is something that's more of a to-be-determined. I don't think we understand the extent of it, the scope of it, or the long-term effects of uh, for any one patient or the population well enough at present. So that needs to be a focus of study, getting to your other point about policies ahead. In terms of the lessons learned, I think there are many and powerful, and we would do well to sort of stay on our toes and stay prepared, whether it be uh, seasonal surges of our existing variants or the continued emergence of new variants. I do not think that uh, this is fully behind us. Yeah, again, um, there are many unknowns here. The United Kingdom is actually quite fortunate in that we do have an ongoing surveillance system which is monitoring the prevalence of long COVID. So we do know that currently about 1.7 million out of a population of 65 million. So um, that's about um, 2.5% of the population, which is a lot, are suffering from persisting problems. Now, of course, there's the spectrum of conditions and symptoms that fit into the very broad definition of long COVID. But in addition to that, I think we're seeing the other sequelae of COVID. Um, there's now, I think, quite good evidence that there's been an increase in new onset type 1 diabetes, which will host challenges going forward. There are people who have developed thromboses, strokes, heart attacks, um, renal infarctions, and so on going forward. Now, that doesn't fit within the typical definition of long COVID, but it does leave a disability. And we're seeing more and more discussion of the macroeconomic impact of this. So the Financial Times, for example, has been covering the challenges that employers are facing with long-term sickness absence, coupled with a whole series of other issues which are impacting labour supply, including the way in which people during the pandemic have begun to question whether they still want to work in the same way, commuting for hours to work and um, often uh, feeling unappreciated and so on. So we've had in many countries quite a significant de premature departure from, from the labour force. So that's um, really quite a, a challenge to look forward to there. Then more generally, I think what we're seeing is this change in working patterns, which will have consequences going forward. There's an issue of education, children that have missed out in education and a generation going forward there. So I think as we look forward to what the post-pandemic world will look like, there's an awful lot of uncertainty. And then you add into it, of course, for us in Europe, we have to remember that there is a land war going on in Europe at the moment. And leaving aside the tragedy of the consequences of the Russian reinvasion of Ukraine, uh, the human tragedy we see on our screens, that is diverting the attention of policymakers and ministers uh, from many of the domestic problems that need to be sorted out too. Sort of looking up, up, apart for a moment, as you're describing, we are moving along with all of this baggage. The Chinese government has chosen to take a different approach to the, the current wave of COVID and to really, you know, clamp down on it, something that, you know, politically, I guess, would, would be an impossibility in the West. What do you think of their response and what are its implications? Maybe uh, start with Martin. 
So I think um, I was one of those who argued from the very beginning that there should have been a much more robust response. We published a paper recently suggesting that if the United Kingdom had locked down a week earlier, just a week earlier, then we probably would have saved about half of the lives that were lost in the first wave. That said, of course, the countries that have done that have uh, had challenges in sustaining that. And I would be hesitant about blaming them because, of course, the problem they faced is that other countries didn't. So they're getting cases imported from the countries that, that failed. But I think I would contrast China, Hong Kong in particular, with, say, New Zealand, which followed a similar we can call it zero COVID, call it maximum suppression approach. And what New Zealand did was to use that time to maximize uptake of vaccination, get a very high uptake of vaccination among older people. Whereas in China, in Hong Kong, they didn't do that. And the uptake was much lower. So that when Omicron did come in with being, being highly transmissible, then you saw a very high death rate. Now, we do need to remember with Omicron that it's often described as being much milder, but that was because it was relatively mild in South Africa, where there was a very high level of background immunity. And what we saw in Hong Kong, where we've got very good data, is that it was not mild in a population that didn't have that degree of immunity. We also know, in fact, in the United Kingdom that the cumulative deaths from Omicron are now about the same as they were with the Delta wave because it's lasted for a bit longer. Uh, so I think the situation in China is that there was a missed opportunity to increase the vaccination rate. And had they done that, then I don't think they would be in the situation they are now. But now I think this has become both a domestic and a geopolitical issue. It's a domestic issue because it is challenging the authority of the party. And it's a geopolitical issue because it's having a major impact on supply chains with consequences for us all. Mike, do you have anything to add in terms of your view about China? Well, so I, I couldn't agree with uh, Professor McKee more. These approaches are achievable in the short term. Um, in many ways, if you went all the way back to spring of 2020, one could have anticipated um, an approach like that would never go in the United States, but we also uh, wouldn't have just opened up and let it happen. And so it feels as though many countries landed where one would have expected them to land whether they had the ability to shut down and do control measures or whether or not they would take some uh, middle-of-the-road stance. But as he said, everyone needed to use that time to engender immunity within their population or immunity and the presence of therapeutics. And for China, that was probably a missed opportunity. Uh, my siblings live in Beijing and what they're experiencing now is difficult. And the risk of instability both domestic and geopolitical due to the supply chain issues, uh, looms large for them and for us. So while it was achievable short term, the ultimate goal here is to achieve enough population immunity to make this more, it'll never be a background issue, but more of a background issue that one can live with than, uh, than they have in front of them still. So looking at, at COVID, despite the tragedy in the United States, over a million deaths and double-digit deaths, uh, obviously, in the millions across the globe generally. There were, in a sense, two miracles, at least from my view. One was the vaccines, and the other was the rapid adaptation of various treatments. N none perfect, but millions and millions were saved, uh, despite the fact that, that, that so many were lost. Martin, from your standpoint, in terms of hospitals, do you see from your side 
of the ocean, uh, the approach to care and operations being affected by this process of learning so rapidly and, and, and adapting to COVID? Absolutely. And I've been very critical of many aspects of the response in the United Kingdom, but we did a number of things really well. The genomic sequencing, for example, but, and uh, our, I think our testing or surveillance program. But the one thing I think we did especially well and which people can learn from is the recovery trial. So it meant that virtually every patient who was admitted to hospital with COVID was given the opportunity to enter into a clinical trial. And that allowed us to test a whole lot of putative treatments. It allowed us to show, for example, that chloroquine was ineffective. It demonstrated the benefit of steroids. And uh, it has helped us really to understand what works and what didn't work. And I think going forward, other countries should be thinking about how they can have the infrastructure in place so that they can implement very rapidly clinical trials that have as broad a recruitment as possible and are not just the problem we often have with clinical trials. They have a, a sort of very small, highly selected group of people who are included who don't have comorbidities or aren't older or whatever. We need to be as inclusive as possible and we need to get the IRB work done in advance as far as we can. We need to get the approval, regulatory approvals done in advance and we need to be prepared to hit the ground running. The other area where I think we've really uh, learned a lot is the importance of having learning collaboratives. So at the beginning, COVID was seen as another effectively an infectious pneumonia. The challenge, at the, the, the perceived challenge at the beginning was how do we get enough um, ventilators? We rapidly learned that this was a complex multi-system disease with implications on almost every system in the body. And that involved bringing together cardiologists and respiratory physicians and neurologists and physiotherapists and, and all sorts of other people so that they could share their experience, do trials where appropriate and disseminate the learning that was taking place. So the importance of placing people in a prone position and working out um, when, to, when it was appropriate to initiate mechanical ventilation and so on and so forth. So those mechanisms are now being institutionalized so that we will have an opportunity to learn across specialties because the problem is that often specialists go to their own conferences, they talk to themselves uh, in all specialties, and we don't have as many mechanisms for that cross-fertilization of ideas. So there's a paradox here, Chip, and the paradox, I think, was the success that HCA had and the demonstration that scale matters in response. So um, as you know, Sam Hazen, our CEO, led us on what was initially a very conservative approach to simply protect our people and protect our organization. Uh, doing so meant creating capacity, financial capacity, clinical capacity. And we didn't furlough or lay off staff, which was uncommon among US hospitals. And we were able to return $6 billion in federal CARES Act dollars to the government. The bottom line for us and our, our, our prime lesson was that scale mattered. Scale mattered in the supply chain and our ability to uh, move things around our system and find alternatives. It mattered at market levels and state levels and flexing our staffing. It mattered, as Professor McKee said, around learning networks. We set up a scaled lab, scaled clinical guidance, interpreting the masses of data that was coming from 
very reputable and non-reputable sources and sort of set up learning networks for our labs, our leaders, our intensivists, our physicians, and um, even scale in our collective financial resiliency was important. The paradox is that scale in U.S. healthcare is rare. U.S. healthcare on the provider side is still very fragmented, and yet uh, we look back and think about what that offered us at times of pressure like this. And and you know, as I think about the de-risking of the supply chain, you can de-risk a supply chain in anticipation of pandemic, but also war, trade agreements, transportation, inflation, the presence of raw materials. Um, that's an interesting paradox for U.S. policymakers moving forward. And I think one of the lessons is, if not implicit scale as we have in U.S. healthcare, or we at least have five to six percent of scale on the provider side, some sort of virtual networks and scale as the UK was able to set up is vital in the face of whatever the next challenge is. So, Mike, uh, you're sort of heading us in the direction of policy, and I'd like to go there to sort of finally close out our discussion. So, considering where we are today with the pandemic, and let me say, without worrying about the specifics, uh, obstacles of the politics of COVID, which, which are obviously monumental, what do you both see as the public policies that ought to be implemented, both in terms of dealing with the ongoing pandemic as well as preparing for the next one? And, and, and in the answer, and I'll ask Martin to go first, I'd really like you to blue sky for our audience and talk about, you know, if you were king, what, what you would do, because obviously the obstacles complicate everything, but I'd like them to get a clear view from both of you of, of where you think we should be going. Well, I don't really have to blue sky because um, I was a commissioner on the Pan-European Commission on Health and Sustainable Development reporting to WHO, and I was the, the lead author of the evidence review for it. So uh, we've spent much of the last year and a half thinking about these things, and we have a whole series of proposals that are going forward through WHO, G20, and elsewhere. So I won't go into all the detail, but essentially we start off from the need to prevent the emergence of a future pandemic. And that means addressing the issue of one health, the interrelationship between the health of humans, animals and the environment. And it goes through to ensuring that we have greater commitment to investing in health. And that involves looking at the OECD's accounting rules and, uh, and so on. And it looks at the global health architecture a whole series of proposals there. Also recognizing that one of the challenges will be reducing the vulnerability of the population as well as the resilience of the health system. So I would I would say that there's a lot of thinking that's gone on in there, but let me just bring it back to the more prosaic and say that I think that one of the priorities for us all will be to think back to our predecessors in public health in the 19th century who recognized the importance of clean water and for us, I think we need to look at the importance of clean air because we now have growing evidence that, of course, we now know that COVID is transmitted by airborne means. But looking at the at greater use of masks in situations where uh, there are reasons to, to think they, they will be helpful, um, filtration, ventilation in particular, looking at the design of our buildings. So essentially, I think we're looking at a clean air revolution going forward, which will have benefits which go beyond COVID to all of the respiratory pathogens that are transmitted in this way. 
I don't think we should overlook the miracles, as you said, of vaccine therapeutics and and the sharing that happened, both sharing that arose spontaneously around uh, shared learnings as well as shared supplies. I do think there were some mistakes that have led to uh, important aspects of policies. One, allowing local leaders to manage capacity and volume. It was an odd time in March of 2020 when we shut down broadly in anticipation of surges that didn't materialize at that time. Instead, allowing people to collaborate with competitors and um, self-manage elective cases to create local surge capacity, I think is a a wiser step. Clearly, there was opportunity in this country for better collaboration of uh, federal agencies, many of whom were pushing out separate rules and expectations that were different, particularly around work for safety. I do think it would be helpful, um, given all the pressures we're facing, to evaluate more prospectively care models that could be acceptable and potentially more efficient during public health emergencies. I think about New York in the heat of uh, those early days. And then I will say the supply chain needs to be a better pressure tested. We have sort of seen what a perfectly optimized supply chain that's just in time looks like, and it doesn't respond well to perturbations and war and pandemics and things like that. So de-risking the supply chain is important. And then finally, I'll just say again, scale, whether virtual or actual, uh, scale and the preparation and pressure testing of that scale, um, I think was one of the important lessons for us in the United States. We were able to execute internally, but we're able to collaborate broadly. And as they did in the UK, that became very powerful, but it was not something that was uh, naturally set up to act that way. It was spontaneous. Well, boy, this has been just a terrific uh, conversation. I I so appreciate both your uh, expertise and openness and the experience that you all have had going through this situation. Hopefully, there is some light at the end of the tunnel, but it looks awfully dim right now. So with that, I'll say thanks, Martin, and, and thanks, Mike, and we'll wrap it up. Thank you very much. Thanks, Chip. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to Hospitals in Focus from the Federation of American Hospitals. Learn more at FAH.org. Follow the Federation on social media at FAH Hospitals and follow Chip at Chip Con. Please rate, review, and subscribe to Hospitals in Focus. Join us next time for more in-depth conversations with healthcare leaders. Oh,